The reading for today is from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. The reading can be found on page 1049 in our Pew Bibles. <clears throat> it's the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the, pod, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. <clears throat> The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of, your, but when this son of yours who has squandered Yes, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Shall we pray? Father, we, uh, we want to acknowledge straight away that uh, we uh, are perfect, that you are, and that you are a good Father who seeks out those who are lost. Uh, Father, may, as we look at this word, be honest with you as to where we are with you, as you are endlessly, endlessly compassionate and gracious and loving to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 15, and we're in this series called The Prodigal God. And for the next four Sundays, we're going to be focusing on the last of these three parables in Luke chapter 15. And uh, last week, if you were here, you remember we were looking at the first two parables together. We looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And we noticed, didn't we, that those two objects uh, were lost, uh, utterly lost, unable to get back home because they couldn't. And so the owner has that uh, wanting to go and find them, and so he goes out to bring them back home safely or finds them, and uh, they are found again and safe. And we see through these parables that Jesus is teaching us that we need a saviour, that uh, we are in a state of hopelessness and helplessness, and he has to come and find us. We can't get back to him. Uh, and we see through this also that God is making a new community, building a new community, a people of hope, a people who have been found through grace. Grace that's free, grace that's lavished upon us. Uh, we are declared new, we are declared clean, and yet, paradoxically, that takes everything, that God gives everything, has to give his best. He gives his, us, his, us his son, and by grace we are found and saved. And so today we begin to look at the third parable, the greatest of these three parables, and we all know it, don't we, is the parable of the prodigal son. And we, at its basic, most basic level, it's a story about a family. We have in the story the father, a younger son, and an elder son. And at the beginning of the story, we see that the younger son comes to his father and asks him or says something to him. The younger son, the younger one, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, straight away, you need to understand something about Jewish culture and the Jewish culture that Jesus is teaching into and living in. And in that culture that Jesus is preaching into, teaching into, the oldest son always gets a double portion of the inheritance. And so if uh, the, there's two sons, the, the older son gets double of whatever the younger one gets. That's just the way it is. And so as we have the story opening, uh, the younger son is going to get a third, and the older son, by rights, should get two-thirds of the estate. Now, to understand what's going on in the parable, we're going to break it down a bit, and the next slide will help us to have three headings to, to try and get to grips with this story a little bit more. And so we'll look at the meaning of the request, that give me my share of the estate request. We'll look at the response to that request, and we'll see how it makes a difference to us in our lives. 
So verses 11 and 12, that's the meaning of the request. We'll look at that first of all. And so right at the start of the parable, it says, Jesus continued, continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, as I said, we, we don't really get the, the, the impact that that statement would have had on the, on the people listening to the story. And remember, the people listening to the story are made up of all sorts of people. You've got the Pharisees and the, and the, and the lawyers, and you've got the, the tax collectors and the sinners who are listening to Jesus. And that statement that the younger one says to his father was just not done. Because the, the property would have only ever been divided up once the father was dead. And that's something that's really important to understand right at the outset. Uh, there's a man called Kenneth Bailey who writes on the, the Jewish context of the Gospels. And he writes this. In Middle Eastern culture, to ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive was to wish him dead. So, do you see what's going on? The younger son has so little respect for his father that effectively he wants him dead. Wants him to one side, wants him forgotten about, out of the way. And, and by doing so, what the younger son is, is doing is bringing disgrace on his family because everybody would have known about it. It's a bit like Basin Hill, you know, uh, somebody sneezes, somebody knows about it. That's an exaggeration, but, you know, people know, would have known about it. And, you know, it, it, tongues and story, but, you know, tongues would have been wagging, you know, can you believe it? What the younger son has asked for, he's asked for his share of the estate. While his father's alive, how could he do such a thing? It's unbelievable, and so on and so on. So it's a massive blow to the family, but it's also a, an act of violence to the economic well-being of the family. So it's a blow to the name of the family, it's also a blow to the economic value of the family and well-being of the family. Why? Because in order to, to, to give this younger son his share of the estate, he will have to sell part of the estate to do that. And so the younger son is, is, is making an assault on, on the family, this, this family unit that's so highly valued in the culture. He's ripping the family apart. He's saying, I don't really care. I'm going to do this, whatever. And it's an act of rebellion against everything that's good and stable in his life. Doesn't want that. It's, it's, an, it's a, a relational and economic act of violence to the family. So why does he do it? That's the question. Why does he do that? Why does he want that? Well, remember what Jesus, the Jesus' audience around him are made up of those two groups, the sinners and the Pharisees. The Pharisees who think of themselves as so highly righteous people. And Jesus is little by little undermining their assumptions about sin, and how we, as they would think, well, you know, they would say, well, actually, you know, by working hard enough on being, being holy enough, righteous enough, righteousness enough, we can get out of sin. We can get to God. And Jesus is chipping away at that idea again and again and again. He's demolishing the idea that you can get to God by your own efforts. And yet, surely, what the younger son is doing is unforgivable. Have you heard of a man called St. Augustine? St. Augustine, a very famous Christian from uh, a long time ago. He was a bishop in North Africa. Uh, he was, uh, it's about 1,500 years ago, in fact, he was alive. 
And uh, he wrote many, many, many uh, amazing uh, things as a Christian. But before he became a Christian, he had big struggles uh, as a younger man. He, he, he struggled with two main things. He struggled with food and he struggled with sex. Those are the, the, he was a, a you know, he, he did, I won't tell you, but he did all sorts of things, I'll tell you. Um, and, and he struggled with sin. He struggled with these things. And, and his struggle to overcome those temptations, which became for him overindulgences, he learned many, many things. And as a result of his learning and his growing, he wrote a book called The Confessions. And in The Confessions, he gives us a theory about why we do what we do. And especially why we sin. And, and he makes this observation. He says this, A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired that man's wife or his property or, or, else, or else he was still to support himself. Or else he was afraid of losing something to him. Or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. And he goes on to say that that man has murdered someone because of something he loves. He loves something. So it might be the fact he, he loves somebody else, or he loves the money he might get from this murder, or there's something else that's going on. And he calls it, and in, he loves something in an inordinate amount, and in an inordinate way, more than he loves God. And so Augustine says that our hearts have what, we, what he calls disordered loves. Disordered loves. We love, we rest our hearts in ways that don't satisfy our hearts. We, we, you know, we seek to satisfy the cravings of our hearts in ways that aren't going to be satisfied. And actually we only find satisfaction for our souls when we find our rest in Jesus, in the Lord. And so, you know, we're not immune from this as Christians, we're not. You know, we can find, we can think, actually, or if I buy that, I'll be happy. Or if I'm a friend of that person, I'll be happy. Or if I go to that place, I'll be happy. And so on, you know, it's an endless list of things we can think that are going to satisfy our souls. But nothing fills that void, that emptiness, than God. Only God fills that hole gives us meaning and purpose. And so Augustine says something really famous. He said, this is really well known, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, in God. And the point of this is this. The younger son may have lived with his father, he may have obeyed his father, he may have lived by all the rules, but he doesn't love his father. Ultimately, what he wants are the father's things, his possessions. He's captured by the thought of wealth and status and comfort and freedom that wealth will bring. He doesn't want the father, he wants the father's things. And he, does, he will do anything to get those things. Now, you might think that that's bad enough, but what about the older son? He, he doesn't want to see the family break up, does he? Well, this is the one of the great ironies of this story. Because on the outside of the two sons, the two sons on the outside look different and behave differently. One runs off, lives, leads a rebellious life, and the other one stays at home and leads a very obedient life. But in the end, they both assault the family. 
The younger one assaults the family by asking for his, his, his share of the estate now. But the older son assaults the family by refusing to enter the party, by go, refusing to go inside. And in the end, the father's happiness is in jeopardy because of both sons. The family's under attack. You see, both the younger son and the older son don't love the father. They don't want the father. They want the father's things. And so the father's heart is being ripped into two. Ripped apart in the process. So that's the request. The meaning of the request is this. this is, the family is in absolute jeopardy. And, and, violent, and there's a violent assault going on in the family. How does a father respond? Let's look at that. The second, well I'll read verse 12. But it's the second half of verse 12 particularly. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. And then go down to verse 20. So he got up, the father, so he got, sorry, the younger son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on his on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now we know, don't we, just from what we just heard, we know that the, the request of the younger son would have shocked his audience, but the, the response of the father would have taken their breath away. Remember, this is, this is patriarchal society. This is, you know, uh, heavily malely dominated patriarchal society. So a younger son, a younger person would have been expected to show deference and respect to their elders and betters. And, and so, n- you know, normally speaking, that request of the, of the younger son to the father would have been treated with absolute contempt. You know, the, the father would have been outrageously angry and said, how dare you do that? And the, the Pharisees, you know, they listen to the story thinking, well, you know, the father's going to be angry at this because he's bound to be angry because this is, not, this is just not acceptable. But what do we read? At the end of verse 12, the father divided his property between them. Now, it's, sim- it's sort of simple, isn't it? You know, we read it and think, well, the father divides his property between them. But if you know the context, you will realize that it's just absolutely against what you'd expect. You do not do that. You don't, in those days, there were no banks, there's no NatWests, no HSBCs, there's no building societies, no, no safety deposit boxes, nothing like that. Your wealth is in your property and your land. That is where your wealth is. Your land bestows your identity. And so to give this younger son some money to become liquid, you might call it, he's going to have to sell his land. Some of his land. Otherwise there's no cash. You can't get cash just from going to the bank. You can't do that. Now, some of you I know are experts of this, but if you aren't an expert on New Testament Greek, you may not know this, but the word property in in the New Testament Greek is the word bios. We translate it into property in this context but actually bios means life bios means life and that's where we get the word biology from the study of life in its in all its forms 
And so you see again, Jesus is saying the Father's life is being ripped apart. He's dividing his, not just his property, but his life between them. This is what's happening to him. His, fa- his the family name is being ripped apart. His status in the community is ripped apart. His very life is being ripped apart, all for the sake of the love that he has for his son. Now, you'd, you know, all everybody else, everybody else around watching this, you know, would say, well, this is foolish. Why do that? Why do that? Why did he accept that request? Well, you know, with hindsight, we, we see why he does it. But, you know, on the face of it, why doesn't he, you know, say, no, you're not going to have that. I'm never going to, and I'm never going to let you back home. You've been so outrageously bad to me. I'm never going to let you home. The door's shut, that's it. No hope. No reconciliation, no salvation. The door shut. But instead, there's a possibility of return. What the Father does actually means that he's taking upon himself the full consequences, the full effects of his son's waywardness rather than exacting revenge and compensation upon him. He's going to suffer for the sins of the child so that one day there's reconciliation possible. You see, this parable's got so much depth and it's only on the second verse of the parable. We're scratching the surface. Let's get a bit, to a bit of application on this for us. How does this apply to us? What difference does it make to you and to me in our lives? Well, the first difference that it makes to us is this. And it's depending on whether we fall into the category of, of the freewheeling, wants to go off and lead this life with all these you know, temptations and giving in to the temptations and you know, all of that kind of the younger brother type, whether, you, whether we're into that category or whether we're in the older brother category, the ones who do all the right things, say all the right prayers, read the Bible, go to church, live a holy life, etc., etc. And this is where we get back to this inordinate loves thing that St. Augustine teaches us about. Because the other way of thinking about an inordinate love is an idol of the hearts. Idols of the hearts. Let me give you an example of, of what that means. Just say, for example, there's a wife who has a husband who spends hours of his time with another woman. And this other woman is not his work colleague, but just socially goes off and spends time with another woman who's not his wife. And the wife finds out that her husband is spending time, lots of time, with this other woman. And not only that, he's sharing his innermost thoughts and feelings and problems with this other woman. And he goes away on holiday with this other woman. And he goes and spends time at her house at the weekends with this other woman. And not only that, he, he, not only that, he then starts talking to his wife about this other woman and telling his wife that he's spending time with this other woman and telling her, his wife that he's sharing his heart with this other woman. And so not surprisingly, his wife confronts him one day and says, have I had enough? It's not good enough. And then the husband says back to her, well, what's the problem? You know, what's the matter with you? I, you know, I'm married to you. I pay the bills. I pay the mortgage. Uh, I put the rubbish out on a Thursday. 
you know, if somebody asks me, I say, I'm married to you. What's the problem? What, what are you so, so upset about? And the wife quite rightly says to her husband, well, you've given your heart to somebody else. You've given your self, you've given your heart, your mind, your imagination to somebody else, to this other woman. Your passion is with her. And the truth is, if we're brave enough to face up to this in ourselves, the truth is that many of us actually are like the elder brother. Because we, we, we obey the rules, we go to church, we read the Bible, we pray our prayers, and so on and so on and so on and so on. But actually our real heart, our passion is somewhere else and belongs somewhere else. And this takes some facing up to, but it can belong to anything or anywhere. It could, you know, if your job is the most important thing in your life, that's where your heart is. If your family is the most important thing, that's where your heart is. If your house, your home is the most important thing, that's where your heart is. If the holidays you've gone are the most important thing, that's where your heart is. If the latest bit of technology is, where you are, is what you're, you're most interested in, that's where your heart is. The list is endless. But hear this. If anything has controlling, the control over your heart, the, you know, where, where your passion is, then that, that deepest place inside you then that has taken place of God. It's taken place of God and that has become like a God with a little g to us. That's a vital truth to grasp. If there's anything higher in your heart, higher in the ladder of importance in your heart than your passion for God, then that's taken the place of God in your heart. Those are what Augustine calls inordinate loves. And those things can lead to our hearts being out of kilter. And it can lead us away from God and knowing the peace of God. And as I said at the earlier service, that takes a bit of soul searching. It takes a little bit of thinking. Well, it takes a lot of thinking through, actually. And praying through. And, and you may just want to do that on your own first before any of that is shared with anybody else. But, but we need to recognize those things for what they are. And it's, it's a, a case of really facing up to it in our own heart and, and, and asking God to show, show us individually in our own hearts about that. But once you, if that is the case, then what do you do? Well, say sorry to God. Repent, say sorry to God and come back to him and enjoy him forever. That's the first thing. Inordinate loves. Is there anything that's in your place instead of God at the top of the list? Secondly, what does it mean? It means that Jesus has done for us what the Father did for his Son in the parable. So that when God appears in the world, we would have expected God, by right, he, you know, by right, God should have appeared in the world and smite the world. You know, take revenge on the world. For the rebellion against him. But he doesn't. He comes as a baby. We've been thinking about this at Christmas, haven't we? He he is born in a manger. We read these uh, words, 1 John chapter, sorry, John chapter 1 verse 14, well-known words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is Emmanuel, isn't it? God with us. 
He doesn't come to wreak revenge. He comes with compassion and mercy. And the re- he takes the revenge upon himself by dying on the cross for us and cancels out the, the wrath that should have been ours. Paul says this amazing words in Romans chapter 5. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross for us. Literally, his life was torn apart for us. And the only property, the only garment that was left, they cast lots for. But he did it so that we, like the younger son, when we come to our senses, can repent and seek forgiveness. And that door is open. We can come back to him because the door is open. We can ask God to forgive us, and he does. What, is that? what about the disordered love's problem? Well, if you, if you think of it objectively, it means, it means that there is real true forgiveness when we put other passions about our love for God and his ways. When we, when we seek his forgiveness for that, there is forgiveness. It means that that sin, that guilt is dealt with. It is dealt with. But subjectively, on the realm, in the realm of feelings, if you're a, you know, more of a feelings and emotions person, what that means is when you, when you understand this, it means that we actually capture a glimpse of the beauty of God, of the goodness of God, of the selflessness of God, of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And when we capture a glimpse of that, then our hearts are captured by that profound sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Because money can't die for us. Our possessions can't die for us. Our popularity can't die for us. But when you realize that Jesus left the the, the perfection of heaven, a place where there is perfect unending happiness, and he came to this world of sin and shame, and he took on our sin, and he took upon himself all that is sinful and horrible about humanity, then we begin to enter into the truth and the beauty of who God is. And then gradually, gradually, we'll begin to worship him above everything else and anyone else. And he will capture our hearts, your heart, my heart, more than anything else in the world. I want to finish with these words that John Newton wrote many, many years ago, but we sing them still. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that the door has been left open to us to seek forgiveness. And thank you, Lord, that you forgive us. Thank you that you have gone out to seek and save those who are lost. And we are those. And there are many, many more. Lord, thank you that you are continually gracious towards us. And even when we think we've plumb the depths of your mercy there's much much more thank you lord that we can come back to you we can find your grace 
your love, your beauty in our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise and thank you. Amen.